Let me pray for us. Lord, we do thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of the book of Malachi and the time we've been able to spend in it. We do ask that you would impress upon us the truth of its message, your call to us, your gospel in Malachi. Grant us ears to hear, grant us eyes to see. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're, we're finishing our sermon series through the book of Malachi. That little prophetic book right at the end of your Old Testament. I invite you to turn there. Uh, it's, if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find it page 800. Um, most editions of the ESV right there around page 800. We're going to be focusing on, on the last verses this morning, the, the six verses of chapter 4, particularly the final three. But we're also going to double back and tie some bows on some various ideas and themes that we have seen throughout our time in the book of Malachi so that we can walk away with, with the big picture. I mean, the entire book of Malachi addresses one big problem. It looks at individual facets of the problem, but really it could be summarized as addressing the issue of dishonoring God, particularly the issue of dishonoring God within the covenant community in worship. In other words, dishonoring God among the people known externally as God's people, the visible people of God. In the nation of Israel, the people who went to temple and worshipped the one true God, there was a problem of not honoring God's name. They failed to honor God even as they worshipped. Actually, as in fact we have seen in our time throughout the book, they actually dishonored God with their worship. Their worship was a huge part of the problem. Part of the way they were dishonoring God. Remember, he said, shut the doors. I don't want your sacrifices. I do not enjoy your worship. Just because someone is a churchgoer, just because someone participates in visible external forms of worship does not mean they are honoring God. In fact, they may be dishonoring him with the very worship itself. Hugely relevant to churchgoers, of which you all are, at least today. Not just relevant, but eternally significant. God warned the people who were dishonoring his name that the ultimate punishment for that was being cut off from his people, falling under final judgment, eternal death, hell. You remember he he said at one point, I will, as a threat of judgment, I will smear the entrails of your festival sacrifices on your face and you will be taken away with them. The image is vivid. You will have entrails smeared on your face and then you will be taken outside the camp and burned with the entrails. That's what you did with the entrails from the festival sacrifices. It's the language of final judgment for their God-dishonoring worship. It's a powerful way to say you will be totally cut off from God and life together with him. You will experience shame and death. That's a warning. It is possible for churchgoers to experience shame and eternal death in the final judgment. So the message of Malachi is eternally significant to everyone in this room. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to read the whole book. It's a short book. But we're going to listen to the whole thing beginning to end. 
Then we're going to summarize some of the main takeaways from the book. We're not going to re-preach the whole book, but we will summarize some of the main takeaways, especially in light of the grand structure, in light of how it moves, how it develops from beginning to end. This is our chance to remember some of what came in the beginning and how it ties in now with some of what we're reading at the end. And then we'll close by considering the rather unique way that the book does end. It does end in kind of a unique way. So let's turn our attention to the book of Malachi. Starting right in verse 1, chapter 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations." Now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread entrails on your faces, the entrails of your festival offerings, and you shall be taken away with them. So you shall know that I have sent this command to you in order that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. 
It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but rather show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who bring, and then brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For I hate the man who divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and then goes and covers his garment with bloodshed, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the angel of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Thus says the Lord, Note how the book opens and then flows from that opening. It opens with a declaration of love from God. I have loved you. And when God is challenged on that love, he elaborates on what it means for him to love the people. He explains what real love really looks like. And as we saw, God's love elects, it chooses, it distinguishes. God makes the point that he chose Jacob, not Esau. In other words, he elected Israel and not Edom. And this choice works out in two very different destinies. Israel would be preserved even as Edom is wiped out. Edom is opposed by God in a way that has a finality to it. God would destroy them and prevent them from ever rebuilding. The point is their destruction will be permanent, imposed on by God and brought about by God himself. Right at the beginning, we see this theme of final judgment and escape from final judgment. The people of God may have ups and downs. They may experience lows. They may suffer and be rejected by the world, but they will never be extinguished. God's love is demonstrated by, experienced by, how one experiences that final judgment, how one is preserved through it. And then remember, that last line of God explaining how he loves his people is this statement. 
Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, you shall respond, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Now you could take that statement uh, as a statement that God's love will be vindicated, right? You, you, you'll see that what I was saying all along was really true. You'll see it, you'll acknowledge it. However, if you remember our very first sermon, we argued that God was still actually explaining how he loves his people. In other words, part of God's love is that he makes it so that his people will see and acknowledge his own greatness. So in answer to the question, how have you loved us? God says, I cure spiritual blindness. That does not let you see my glory. Part of how God loves is that he makes them see. And as we've worked our way through the book, we've seen this reading play out and be confirmed. Remember, the the stated root problem, we hear it over and over and over in the book. The root problem at the heart of all their bad, God-dishonoring worship is that they don't actually see God for who he is. They don't fear him. They don't esteem his name. Right? That's what's at the root of their corrupt worship, spiritual blindness. And God states over and over in the book that his goal for history and the world is that from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. In every place, incense will be offered to my name, a pure offering. My name will be great among the nations. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. That's his goal. The problem at the heart of the book is spiritual blindness, and God's goal for the world is spiritual sight. My name will be feared. So that's something God's planning for addressing. It's something he's going to do. He is going to glorify his name, which means he is going to need to cure spiritual blindness. Remember that refining passage that we just read in chapter 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. As a result of their refining by God, they will bring offerings of righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. Right? That passage emphasizes judgment, but it also highlights that God's people are spared that judgment by him purifying them so that their offerings now come in righteousness. God changes them so that their worship becomes pleasing. And why wasn't the worship pleasing? Because they did not honor God from the heart. Because the people did not fear or esteem his name. So in order for God to purify his people and make their worship pleasing, he has to cure their spiritual blindness. He has to make them esteem his name. So so you see the the logic, the connection. If God is going to make their worship pleasing, God needs to make their eyes seen. And if God preserves his people from judgment by making their worship pleasing to himself, he preserves them by making them see. So the statement at the beginning of the book, you will see, is not so much a statement that God's love will be vindicated. It's a statement of how God loves. He cures your blindness to himself. How have you loved us? I'm going to make you see me for all that I am and all my goodness and glory. And in Malachi, there are two ways that God goes about this loving on the people. Two ways that he goes about curing their spiritual blindness. First is easy to miss because of how obvious it is, but it's the book itself. 
His, his admonitions, his warnings, his calling out their lackluster worship, their costless gatherings, their meager sacrifices, their half-hearted celebrations, their skimpy tithing, their faithlessness in relationships, their cavalier cavorting with idolaters in the bedroom, their brazen marital infidelity, and their self-justifying complaining. God calls that out, and these admonitions are meant to call and correct, not just condemn. Right? That's part of God's intention by giving the words. I mean, you can see this in the very phraseology used throughout the book. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, in response to these corrections. In other words, one possible reaction is to take it to heart. To be someone who is spiritually blind, who's doing these things, but then who hears these corrections and responds from the heart who is then changed to desire to honor God's name. You can hear the prophetic word and realize, yes, I do fail to honor God in my heart. I I don't see him for how glorious he is, how glorious he must be as God, Lord, and ruler of the heavens, commander of the heavenly armies. But now I want to. I, I want to see. I want to honor him. I want to esteem his name. One of the ways that God cures spiritual blindness is with the word itself that calls out that blindness. He speaks. God is the only one who speaks things into existence. He did it with the world in creation and he does it with dead hearts in new creation. The very act of identifying sin in us and telling us about it is part of how God corrects and heals. God uses scripture to open our eyes to his glory. And the second way that we see in Malachi God healing our spiritual blindness is with a decisive act in history where the blindness of his people is done away with by God drawing near and directly healing them. Right? We, we saw it over and over. This decisive act, direct action by God towards the end of the book is called the day of the Lord. Right? The day of the Lord when God comes and acts. Now, the day of the Lord and the prophets usually has primarily a connotation of judgment, and we certainly see that in Malachi, such as the, here in chapter, at the end of chapter uh, 3. For behold, the day is coming, or in chapter 4, be her- burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But the other side of the judgment coin is salvation, as it continues in chapter 4. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Judgment on God's enemies and salvation for God's people, for those who fear his name. And how God loves is he spares from judgment. He spares his people from judgment by giving them fear of his name so that they can enjoy all the wonders of salvation. Right? As it said earlier in chapter 3, when he first introduces the whole idea of the day of the Lord, of his drawing near, God will refine his people on that decisive day so that they can be people who fear his name and thus go out leaping in joy. Now, a few things should be observed about the day of the Lord, both in the prophetic corpus in general, but also in Malachi. The day of the Lord is a day when when God draws near and he manifests himself in a special way, like but greater than his previous special manifestations throughout salvation history. 
right? We, we know God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. But throughout salvation history, there have been times when he has manifested himself. He has drawn near in a special way. Like in Exodus, God went with the people as they went out of Israel. He went with them in a pillar of cloud and fire. He spoke with Moses face to face, right? So the day of the Lord is a day when God was going to do something like that, but greater. He was going to draw near to his people in a special way. In chapter 3, we heard how God was, is going to send two messengers. The first prophetic messenger prepares the way for the second, who is called the angel of the covenant and the Lord of the temple, the owner of the temple, who himself refines his people as fire, who's coming, few can stand. And in that same passage where God says, this is the Lord of the temple who's coming, who's going to do this, a sent one, in that same passage, God says, I draw near for judgment. First person, I do it. And then here at the end, in, the, in chapter 4, God describes that day as the day when I act. Again, first person. So in the same book, sometimes in the same chapter, sometimes basically in the same breath, God describes both himself coming and judging and saving and a sent one, the Lord of the temple, a consuming fire who is going to come and judge and save. God proclaims that there is coming a day when there will be one sent, one who is prepared for by the prophetic witnesses, but who himself is angel sent and yet Lord of the temple and whose presence is the same as God himself drawing near. In other words, in Malachi, God makes it clear he is going to come in a special way. The people will see and experience God similar to how the earlier Old Testament saints encountered God near and visible, but in a more climactic and magnificent way, than, better than any of those other previous appearances. And God kept his word. He manifested in a way that stunned the angels watching in heaven, as Peter says. God took on human flesh. He came in the flesh. Jesus is God keeping his word and coming The angel of the covenant, the Lord of the temple, both sent one and God himself, drawing near to his people to save and judge. The prophets, in seeing the day of the Lord, they were seeing the ministry of Jesus in all its fullness. They didn't necessarily understand how it all parsed out. I've heard this illustration often. It's not my illustration. But if you've got uh, multiple mountain peaks, if you're looking at it from this vantage point, it all just kind of looks like one big mountain. That's kind of how the prophets were, seeing the fullness of everything Jesus was going to do, but not necessarily understanding, oh, first, second, second coming, how it all parsed out. They were seeing the ministry of Jesus, though. That's, that's what the day of the Lord was. And, they, and all, all this magnificence that they were waiting for, that was Jesus. They saw his first coming, his second coming. Right? Day of the Lord, the time of the Lord, the time when God would act. They were perceiving, God was revealing to them in various degrees of understanding the reality of Jesus' coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his return for final judgment. They understood. They were seeing this one glorious whole, but not necessarily how it worked out in all the particulars. And so much of Malachi's vision in this book uh, is still future. It's still looking forward toward the second coming of Jesus. But it is inaugurated. It's begun. It's initially fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. Jesus' first coming and second coming blend together to be one glorious vision in these short paragraphs. And thus Jesus, his coming... Jesus' coming is the second way that God loves his people, that he cures their blindness. Jesus comes and cures the blindness. 
Jesus is God decisively acting in history to love his people by revealing himself, showing himself, displaying the glory of God so that his people would see and so be unblinded. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus reveals the glory of God in all its fullness to our human eyes. In Christ, we can see God's glory. Jesus comes to heal the spiritual blindness of his people. So we've got these two ways that God hears, heals spiritual blindness in vision in the text. There's the text itself, the word directed to the people, and then the actual coming of God in the flesh. Jesus coming to unblind the people himself in a de- decisive, direct, salvific act. Now how do these two answers relate to each other? How, how do these two answers to how God cures spiritual blindness fit together? How do we say God does it through his word and that God does it decisively through the coming of Jesus who reveals God and he directly heals our spiritual blindness? Like if we need Jesus, why bother calling out to us with uh, his word? If Jesus does this in his first and second coming, why bother speaking before then if those words are to no avail? The two actually fit together in a beautiful, perfect harmony The word itself, Malachi's word, and all the rest of the Old Testament actually testifies about Jesus. It tells you about him, just like we see here in Malachi. All of God's word, it points to his decisive drawing near to his people in the person of Jesus Christ. All of scripture is about Jesus and leads to Jesus. Two slightly different things. It's all about him and it all leads to him. The word shows Jesus. It reveals Jesus, who himself reveals the Father. And yet we need Jesus himself to have come, to have done work in order to make that word effective. Jesus makes it possible for God's spoken word to have the convicting, healing effect that it has on God's people. Our problem is spiritual blindness, but it is a a willful, culpable blindness, right? We are active rebels against God. And in our profaning of his good name, our, our profaning of his good name, it deserves the judgments that are warned about here in Malachi. Our sin deserves punishment. So theoretically, just to heal our blindness wouldn't address the fact that we have many way, in many ways acted corruptly and evilly in that blindness and so have accrued for ourselves the rightful condemnation that our sins deserve. If only our blindness was healed, we'd still be liable to judgment. Additionally, As we were heard already in the service, Jesus lived as a perfect man, never rebelling against God, and thus himself as a representative, earning an eternal reward, earning a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a royal inheritance. And he shares what he has earned with his people. So if you are in Christ, your sins are paid for, your sins are covered, and an eternal reward has been earned by Jesus that he shares with you. You are counted righteous because Jesus is righteous and his righteousness is counted for you if you are in him, united to him with faith, by faith. 
You remember in 3.18 and then again in 4.3, we hear that righteous language. Once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. So we've got one group. They're the righteous. We have there in 4.3, You who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. God's people are called righteous, but not because that comes from within, not because they are inherently righteous, but because they are counted righteous. They are declared righteous because he shines righteousness down on them. That's the the point of that kind of word picture. In other words, he provides righteousness for them that they don't have. You feel the heat from the sun and its light, but you don't produce any light. And in fact, any energy and warmth that your body does produce is actually ultimately from the energy from the sun. In the same way, God provides the righteousness for you that bathes you in its goodness and light that is counted towards you. And the righteous deeds that you do that flow from that are only a result of that perfect righteousness that has already been gifted to you by Jesus, the shining source of all righteousness. And one of the benefits of Jesus paying for the sins of his people and being perfectly righteous on their behalf is he buys the rights for them to experience the blessings of the new covenant. Right, Jesus said that in, in the institution of the Last Supper. This is the new covenant in my blood. I, I'm purchasing the new covenant for you. And then we read back in Jeremiah where it defines the new covenant. That's the new heart. That's the new eyes that you get to see. So Jesus, by his death, actually purchases the rights for his people to enjoy that. Right? He makes it possible for them to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit by his life, death, resurrection. He makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to dwell with them by qualifying them for it. We saw recently in John, Jesus said he would send the Spirit, and then what would the Spirit do? The Spirit would illuminate the Word to his people, make make them see. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection makes it possible for the Spirit to draw near and open eyes. So the Bible, it, it tells you about Jesus. It witnesses to Jesus. It shows you Jesus who shows you God. And so in this way, God's Word, the Bible, heals spiritual blindness. But the only reason it can have this effect is because Jesus died for his people's sins and he earned them a place in the kingdom. And so when they read the Bible, Jesus is able to send his spirit to open his eyes to see himself in what they read. Right? That's an active work of Christ. He does that present tense. He makes it possible with his ministry in the past and it is something he actively does in the present. Jesus is active in your present scene. He is active in your present Bible reading, in your present sermon hearing. Think about what that means. Jesus didn't just come and give us something to believe in passively. Like He did these things and we're supposed to believe in them. He is Lord today, alive and active today, doing things today. If you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ when you read Scripture or when you hear Scripture, when you read the Bible or you hear a sermon from the Bible, and when you do that, if it's convicting and encouraging and Christ-exalting and God-glorifying, If when you read, you catch that glimpse, that small taste of God's glory, that is literally because Jesus died for your sins, he rose again, ascended into heaven, and then he sent the Spirit saying, go now, right now, make that word come alive for Elisha. Let Jose see, see right there. Make that sermon click for Brett. If you're seeing him now, it's because he worked in the past and he is working today. Jesus is both the glory of God revealed and the revealer of the glory of God to us in the scriptures. 
One of the results of his ministry is that he makes it possible for us to see and apprehend his glory in the Bible. He reveals himself to us by the Spirit through his word. As Malachi makes clear, our relationship to God is defined by how we esteem him. Those who participate in public external worship but don't esteem his name, don't really fear him, are not his people. And since Jesus is the decisive revelation of God's name to his people, that means our relationship to God is actually defined by Jesus. All people's relationship to the one true God is defined by their relationship to God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus, you are not on good terms with God. Just as you can come to church and gather for worship and not be on good terms with God, we've seen that over and over in Malachi, So, too, you can adhere to a certain moral code. You can be respected in society. You can be kind of good in the eyes of most. You can be a nice person. You can be spiritual and still be despising your good creator and father. You can still be dishonoring his name. No matter how else you live or act, no matter how spiritual you are, or how much you talk about God, if you reject Jesus or if you're cavalier about him, if you reject God's ultimate revelation of himself to you or you're cavalier about it, You despise God. Jesus is the name that we must esteem. As Paul says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's people, those whom God loves, are defined by their relationship to Jesus. To be in Jesus by faith is to be one of his people. It is to be loved by God. The book opened by pointing out that God's love elects and distinguishes. Then it works that out within the visible covenant community, within the people. Israel versus Edom from the first five verses of the book becomes Israel versus true Israel throughout the rest of the book. So in Malachi, there is this distinction between God's love and his hatred, between God's people and those who are not his people. And that distinction is how his word affects them. Does it cause them to fear him, to honor him, to esteem his name, to care about his glory? Is Jesus working through his word? There is Israel, there is Edom, God's people in the world, but what defines whether or not one counts as Israel Israel or will share with Edom in its destruction is how you respond to Jesus Christ. The distinction between God's people and not God's people is not national, it is spiritual. Edom, Israel, chosen, not chosen, loved, hated. That distinction exists within the visible covenant community, within the visible church, within all those who show up on Sundays. There is a true church. Those who fear God, respect their creator, honor his goodness, esteem the name of Jesus, and care about his glory and reputation in the world. They care that he is recognized and praised for all that he is and all that he does. That's what it means to be God's people. Those who reject Christ will be totally cut off in his second coming. There will be neither root nor branch remaining. But those who esteem the name of Jesus will participate in his victory, even as they themselves sinful, failing, often failing to see his glory, often plagued by remaining vestiges of spiritual blindness. They will still participate in his victory, his righteousness counting for them. They will go forth in untainted joy, untainted joy, bounding like a a well-fed calf, playing in the hills and fields on a beautiful sunny day. That is the destiny for those who belong to Christ. But curiously, this wonderful glimpse of God's love in action, God's saving love, God's judging, avenging love, his glory-revealing love, and the first and second comings of Christ, 
here in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4, is not how the book ends. It could have ended there. I mean, it seems like a great place to end. But the book closes with a summarizing exhortation, a word to the reader that they are supposed to take away in light of everything else in the book. Verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4, we read, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Remember the law of my servant Moses. In other words, remember the word, the word revealed to you. He draws their attention to the fullness of the scriptures, not just the words contained here in the the book of Malachi. That makes sense. That makes sense based on everything we've read in Malachi. God's word is the means to healing spiritual blindness. In the law, Jesus is witness to. You only have the categories necessary for understanding who Jesus is and what he does from the Old Testament, from the Pentateuch, from the prophets, from the law of Moses. So it makes sense for the book to end with an exhortation back to that word. Remember the law of my servant Moses. But we also get one more promise of a forerunner, of a prophetic witness that will prepare the way for Jesus' climactic entrance into history. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That, too, makes sense in the close of the book. But then the text says something surprising about what Elijah, what the forerunner, the prophetic herald going before the Lord will do. At least it was surprising to me when I read it. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Why does he say that? I mean, based on the entire flow of the book and the the clear repetition of purpose and theology, there are maybe three or four ways you would expect that sentence to finish. You would expect the book to end. They're all just variations of themselves. I will send Elijah and he will open your eyes to my glory. Or I will send Elijah, and he will exalt my name among the nations. Or I will send Elijah, and he will bring the fear of me upon you. I will send Elijah, and he will glorify my name. You expect something directly about God's honor and glory, since that's been the theme from the very beginning. But instead, we end the whole book with family relationships. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers. He's going to fix things between... Dads and their kids. Now, don't misunderstand my tone. I'm not saying that fixing things between dads and their kids is a a small thing. But it just kind of feels out of left field. Here is the last word in the whole book. The last word in all the prophets. It's not that the words themselves are confusing even, right? Turning the hearts of fathers back to children and children back to the fathers. We understand what he means. Restoring something broken in the families. Restoring a right relationship between parents and children. That itself is is worth meditating on just in isolation. But we can further benefit by meditating on this whole question of context. So not just what is he saying, but why is he saying it here? So to end our time in Malachi, let's break down this ending bit by bit. As we mentioned back when we were looking at the idea of the forerunner in chapter 3, the New Testament explicitly identifies John the Baptist as fulfilling this Elijah ministry. John the Baptist came as a prophetic forerunner, calling the people to repentance, calling them back in preparation for the arrival of Christ. But then we might ask, well, did did John the Baptist do this? Did he turn the hearts of fathers back to their children and then children back to their fathers? But we also have to remember that the great and awesome day of the Lord that is coming here in verse 5 that is spoken of 
encompasses both comings of Christ, viewed as one magnificent whole. So in view are both the first and the second coming. John the Baptist was the final prophetic forerunner of Jesus, the final prophet before Jesus' first coming. But then Jesus himself also fulfills the prophetic ministry. Jesus is his own forerunner for his second coming. And if that sounds weird, just remember, the, the prophetic office is a type. It's a, it's a pattern that Jesus fulfills. The ultimate spokesperson for God is Jesus Christ, just like uh, the office of priest. We see that in chapter 2 of Malachi, or the office of king. Jesus is the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, ultimate prophet, ultimate priest, ultimate king. So even though we mostly think of types and patterns being in the Old Testament, and then fulfillment is in the New Testament, so too, even John the Baptist in the New Testament is a type of Christ. He, as the final prophet, is the final prophetic type. So ultimately, Jesus will fulfill the promise of verses 5 through 6 to prepare his people for his second coming. So why are we envisioning this family ministry of Jesus then here at the close of the book in preparation for his second coming? You have the fact that uh, this is an example of the laws, right? The words of Moses that he exhorts us to remember in verse 4. Honor your father and mother that you might live long in the land. There's that connection too. So in one sense, verses 5 through 6 could stand for all the law and the prophets, right? Jesus is going to come and change hearts. But these verses aren't just an example chosen at random, right? You also have the fact that earlier in the book, when talking about the rampant infidelity in marriage, the cavalier attitude towards mixed religious marriages, that one of the casualties was the children. What was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Translation, your sins make it so that godly offspring are not produced. Fathers going after their lusts fail their children. So one reason verses 5 through 6 are here is that it's a restoration, particularly fulfilling an earlier problem that was in view in the book. But finally, consider what were the responsibilities of fathers, of parents in the Old Testament? Right? Where, where would their minds have gone when he says the hearts of the fathers were returned to their children? What were the hearts of the fathers supposed to be doing? When you think about what it means for parents, for fathers to turn to their children, in the Old Testament, in the law, one passage in particular comes to mind. And when you read it, suddenly the verses all kind of fall into place. It makes perfect sense right here, right where they are. The one command, the primary command given to parents about how they will relate to their children, the command that was literally given the most words, the most text, the most space in the Bible, was to teach the children the word of God as an act of loving God. Remember in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and there shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Love and honor God and teach that to your children. Let my word dominate your life. As it goes on to say in the immediately next verses, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Sounds just like Malachi, just like here at the end of the book. 
So Malachi, with this particular image of fathers turning back to children and children to fathers, draws your mind back to this key text in Deuteronomy. The point here at the end falls perfectly into place. Everything crumbles because of our spiritual blindness. The ultimate result of not seeing God, not loving Him with all our hearts and souls and strength, not fearing Him, not serving Him, is destruction. It is being destroyed. It is a decree of utter destruction. And if our hearts were right before the Lord, if our eyes were open, we'd see God and we'd talk about Him. We'd teach our children. If the children's eyes were open, they'd see God and they'd honor their parents and obey them in the Lord and so ultimately give honor to their Heavenly Father. What is envisioned here at the end of Malachi is how Jesus is making all things new. In preserving his people from judgment and preparing them for his second coming, he fixes all the things that are broken. He does this by giving his people eyes to see, to fear him, to love him with all their heart, souls, mind, and strength, so that that love overflows into all their duties, their familiar duties to make the word central in their lives, and so be further transformed by the constant exposure to that word. By restoring the family relationships, it means restoring love for God in the heart and His Word on the lips. I was speaking about this text with someone this week, and they asked me, can this be applied to spiritual fathers, or is that going too far? Is that extending too far? I mean, obviously, in in the immediate foreground of the text is immediate family relationships, but it isn't going too far to apply this to spiritual fathers. We talked about it in Sunday school this morning in Ephesians 4, right? This is envisioning, the fathers and son relationship is envisioning God being loved and God's word being spoken, right? That's the ideal family relationship, God being loved, his word being spoken. And that's exactly what Paul envisions for the church in Ephesians chapter 4. The teachers up front, yeah, we teach the word, and you're supposed to be built up. But then at the end of that paragraph, it says, you speak the word in truth to each other and build each other up. Right? What God envisions here is, yes, yes, it applies to spiritual fathers. It applies, applies to spiritual children. Because what Jesus does is he gives love of God in the heart, and he puts the word of God on people's lips. When God is loved and esteemed from the heart so that we're teaching his word to each other in the families, in our individual families units, but also in our church family, right? When we do that in the family, we're going to do that outside the family. When there's been that real change inside the heart, it's going to happen outside just our homes. We will have spiritual fathers and spiritual offspring. We'll have those who teach us the word, who help us to see God's glory more clearly, and those who learn the word from us, who we help show God's glory too. What, what is envisioned in verse 6 is uh, this complex of glory seeing and glory sharing. People seeing Christ's glory, loving him, and building up those around them in that love, in that glory seeing. That's what Jesus does. He reveals the glory of God and he makes us see him and so love him and share in that mutual upbuilding He invites us to participate in all the future glories of salvation, still in the future, still to look forward to. He invites us to be spared that coming destruction. He promises his people, you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the warnings in Scripture, and we thank you for the promises. And we thank you for the ministry of your Son, which has made it possible for us to receive the promises, to heed the warnings. We thank you for his sacrificial death on our behalf, so that we do not have to face the consequences for our spiritual blindness. We thank you for the righteousness that he gives us that qualifies us to share in the future promises. 
we thank you for the gift of your spirit that allows us to read this word, to hear a sermon, and actually see Christ. Thank you for doing all of this for us, your people. Grant us to lay hold of that future joy and all the foretaste we get of it, even now here in this life, in the present. And for any here who have not yet had their eyes opened, who have not yet seen your glory in the face of your Son, by your Spirit, through the Word, we do pray, even now, in this moment, that you would be opening eyes. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.